citizen. Oh, oh, oh. Out of many weeks. We are pro citizens. Same vision is for equal rights and justice. For the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast. I'm Arthur Canagus. Uh, the host of the program with co-host Melanie Bennett. Uh, and today uh, we're excited to have a, a, a guest who was part of the, uh, from Minnesota, which was kind of a, a city that played a key role, a state and a city, Minnesota, and, uh, and, and the whole uh, uh, St. Paul area and so on. They were a key part of the launching of the movie, The World is My Country which is the background to why we have this podcast. Um, the film first had its world premiere at the St. Anthony, Maine in Minnesota. And a key person who, was, who helped bring that about and helped organize that was Dick Bernard, who is here with us uh, listening to our, our guest today, because he's played a key role in assisting kind of all of the progressive things that have been going on in Minnesota. Now to set the stage before we in, in before we introduce Frank Cronkey and his incredible story, I want to say a little bit about uh, the background of to give you a, a sense of the flavor and tone of what was happening there in Minnesota, and that is Minnesota was a state that was very active in people wanting, wanting to protest the war in Vietnam uh, and a very uh, very involved from the, from not only the grassroots but going right up to the whole state level. In fact, uh, the city of uh, Minneapolis and the state of Minnesota were among the first in the United, certainly the first in the United States and among the early ones in the whole world to declare themselves world cities. And this is a movement that Dick Bernard was very much a part of with uh, Lynn Elling, uh, who was one of the mentors of the world citizen movement and uh, who knew Gary Davis and was a key part of this whole program. Now, uh, in order to just give you a flavor, a taste of this, uh, of how this grassroots effort went up to the very top in Minnesota and key people like, uh, like Hubert Humphrey and Walter Mondale and national figures from Minnesota were a part of this movement for world cities and to, help, and to end war. We're gonna play a little clip uh, from the governor, the governor of Minnesota. And you can see the full clip here on our website at theworldismycountry.com slash shorts. As the governor of Minnesota, I'm proud to introduce this story. In many ways, it is an incredible story of Minnesota grassroots effort to promote permanent peace in the whole world. The people involved differ in many ways as to religion, politics, race, and color. However, the common denominator is that we belong to the same human family. We're dedicated to the proposition that if the human family on spaceship Earth is to survive, the world problems of war, pollution, and starvation must be outlawed. This is our quest. I sincerely believe this story needs to be told throughout our state, throughout the nation, and yes, the world. Who knows, the concept of world citizenship could be the spark that will ignite the flame of permanent peace under just law. Here is a state where from the grassroots up to the top, people are very concerned about building permanent peace in the world, uh, about being part of the global family. And as he said, people from all different walks of life uh, coming together uh, to, to, to help build this movement for peace. And uh, so thank you, Dick, for being a key part of both our testing out the film in Minnesota and for being a part of helping us uh, uh, launch the film at the St. Anthony, Maine. And when you go to our website, if you go to the world is my country forward slash applause, you'll see the incredible standing ovation we got, the incredibly enthusiastic reaction from viewers uh, when we did that showing in the theater there that launched our film on this tour where it's uh, now gone around across the country on over 100 PBS stations and out on Dish Network and Direct TV and so on. So this gets us to set the frame for Minnesota where something very, very important happened and where we have a guest who saved, uh, well, probably thousands of lives in Minnesota uh, through his bold action. And I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna give away his bold action right now. I'm gonna introduce him and, and let you hear more about him. But Frank Kroenke played a, a key role in the Catholic activist movement. And I'll let him tell a little bit more about his own background and, the, and his dedication to, uh, 
to the principles of uh, the, the real principles of what Jesus was all about, you know, love your enemies, uh, uh, love your neighbors yourself, these powerful principles that actually, uh, uh, actually could be much more powerful than the weapons of war. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to introduce Frank and let him give you a little more introduction to his background and what led up to the incredible action you're going to hear about today. You know, and we all of us, like 1970s, like that's 50 some odd years ago, <laughs> seems like a long time. And as they always say, lots of things have changed and everything has remained the same. Um, people look at the world as if it is legitimately broken up into things like the United States, Argentina, England, Russia type of stuff. And in fact, what we found out since the 60s, especially from science and otherwise, you know, the space travel and stuff is that the earth is a unique place for us to live. And it's the only home we have. And every time we go to war, like Pogo with the cartoon character, if you all remember Pogo, he said, I have bet the enemy it is us. That was something that, you know, I grew up with my father, I'm one of nine kids. My, my father was in the Navy when I was born. He, you know, he refused to work on the bomb. He had been a chemist from University of Notre Dame and he was down in, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and he wouldn't work on it because he was a Catholic. And he said, I can't do that. I can't work on a weapon of mass destruction. And that's sort of the story because the weapons of mass destruction are still going on. So in one sense, somewhat with sort of dark humor, I say, you know, everything that I did failed. You know, we, at the same time, you know, we mobilized a lot of people, to, people got incented. So my personal story is that after being in a, mon a monastery in the seminary and going to a Catholic college and stuff, I became a conscientious objector. And I thought that was a good thing. I, could do, I did two years of alternative service at the University of Minnesota Newman Center under Father Harry Berry, who's himself a well-known peace activist in the, in the Midwest and around the world for some people. And uh, basically, you know, men kept coming to me after mass talking about the war. And I've mentioned this many, many times to people. I mean, I listened and I was just sort of like blown away, you know, what, all the things that they were struggling with. Well, they didn't want to go to Vietnam, but, you know, if they didn't go, they had to go to prison. And if they went to prison, they couldn't become an accountant or a doctor or whatever. At the time, it was like, you know, they walked into a wall. It was like, you know, you go or every, everything in your life is messed up. I thought at the time, being an idealist and a young person in my 20s, that the, arch, that the bishops of the United States Catholic Church would step forward and be a witness to Jesus as a nonviolent hero. But <laughs> exactly the opposite occurred. We were denounced. I was personally denounced by the Archbishop of Minneapolis-St. Paul and forbidden to, to, to preach at, at, at any of the, the churches in his diocese. So anyway, when we did the Beaver action, many of us, including people on this call, like Chuck Turchick, had done draft raids in other places. And one of the most eff effective ones that we had done in February of 1970 called the Beaver 55, which was the name of another group back in, in Pennsylvania that raided um, FBI offices and stuff. We did it, remember, this is pre-television, pre-internet and stuff. We did it because we wanted to sort of give them the idea that we were connected, which of course we weren't. So I'm telling you all this stuff because, you know, we, we had no idea what we were getting into. You know, the complexity of the whole military industrial complex and all that stuff. And in Minnesota, we had companies like Honeywell making bombs and all this other stuff. So it was an awakening. So part of the other awakening is that this led not only to the draft raids of the Beaver 55 in, in February of 1970, but because of what went on. Now, if you go back and think about it, check this out on the internet. In, after February, you had Kent State, you know, had Cambodia invasion, things like that. People were, were, were really sort of didn't know what to do. So we did another draft raid. And the idea wasn't necessarily to get people to do draft raids. It was what, whatever they, wherever they were in their life, it was to resist. What you're talking about here is a really uh, uh, something we want to hear a little more about, a really daring adventure where activists who cared so much about about peace and so on were willing to and and and, and really about a better having a better world and having saving lives uh, were willing to put their lives on the line to 
go to to break into draft boards and destroy the draft records that made it possible to send these boys, these these young men at that time to Vietnam. Uh, and so, as I understand it, uh, you actually ended up uh, destroying. Well, let's we'll get more of that later in the story. But again, I'm glad it's setting part of the stage of this. You mentioned both the activist movement and uh, the, the weapons manufacturers were there. Honeywell was making these cluster bombs, uh, which, were, uh, which were designed as what they called area denial weapons. And what they were is they would, and, and we have seen many of these used now in the Ukraine war, but one big bomb drops a whole bunch of these little bomblets. And these little bomblets were at that time designed, some of them had these lichettes that would tear into your skin, some of them these little pellets. And they would try to figure out how to make them cause the maximum damage and not necessarily kill someone. In other words, what they said is in the area denial strategy, if you kill one person, uh, they're out of commission. But if you can, uh, you know, if you if, if you can tear the tear up part of their body, then you tie up all the people who are the medical staff and all the people working on them, and you have a more impact on demoralizing the society, which was the idea to try to demoralize the people of Vietnam from supporting what they called the Viet Cong, which was really the national liberation struggle of Vietnam to free their country from foreign invaders. I mean, all the all the lies. There wasn't any dominoes that fell. There wasn't any. It wasn't China trying to take over. All that turned out to be baloney stories. Uh, but what it was was the people of Vietnam trying to to free their country, and so what they did in these is, is they found out that the metal pellets could be detected by X-ray. So they changed them to these uh, fiber uh, pellets that couldn't be detected by X-ray. So it was so much harder; it would take hours to operate to try to dig in there and find out all the little pellets and pull them out. And it was just like the most gruesome things that this military-industrial complex was was making, and yet they were paying so many of the bills, supporting politicians and so on. And so it's in that context that uh, that Frank then ended up doing something quite remarkable. So I'll let you continue uh, telling a little of your story, but give us a sense of what it was like that day. Uh, I know you have another one of the members of your of your right here on the call. Maybe he could uh, unmute and join you. But what was it? What was was it? What, what, was it was it frightening? What was the story like? Tell us what led up. Describe one of the uh, your first raids, say it uh, in detail. And then tell us what happened the next one after that. The first raid, the Beaver 55, again, this, I, I'm at the Newman Center. So I think I'm doing a good thing. I'm doing my alternative service. So the second wave of people came to talk to me were returning veterans from Vietnam. Um, and they tell me these stories about warfare. Oh, yeah, they went in, they had to kill people. Suffer. And they said, well, here I am. What was that all about? Where, where is that getting us? Why was they doing that type of stuff? And, you know, I'm going like, you know, I never myself have been in battle or whatever. So this one guy, Gordy Nelson, says to me, you've got to stop the story from being told. You have to shut the system down. And then I say in French, the little effort left my office and I just sort of went berserk and went over to the what's called the Toon Swindy Draft Information Center, where I met the likes of such crazy people as Chuck Turchick, who's on this call. Now, part of the humor there is, is that I'm six foot three and Chuck is about five foot five. I, don't, I have no idea, Chuck. You have to correct. So we were, he was the, we were the short and tall of the draft raiders. And in the very first Beaver 55, we actually hoisted him up and sent him through a transom to open the door from the inside. So what happens there is there's something, it's a little long-winded story, but I want to tell you. The guys are down here in this office, which, like I said, ironically, because Minnesota at the time couldn't afford to sustain all of these draft offices in every county in, in the metropolitan area. It costs too much money. You have to have staff just to do one draft board. So they centralized them. So there's like 45 draft boards in the St. Paul office and Minneapolis has some, some similar number. So the deal is, is that, you know, while guys were down and women, there was always women involved. I think this is important, especially Quaker women. Who were involved in the well, they were down destroying the, the 1A files. You remember, if you remember the times, if you had a 1A classification, you were going to be drafted. And um, so we destroyed the 1A files. And so Chuck and, and I and another fellow went upstairs to the, and it happened to be just a happenstance. And in the same building, mm -hmm. the state director of Selective Service had his office. And we broke into his office. And, you know, there's pictures of at the time Nixon and the vice president. Uh, on the wall and they're 
Chuck can tell you what some of the stuff they were doing. And I sat down at the director's desk and I pull out the top of it. And there's these blank draft cards and stamps. He's the last resort for people to get, get drafted. So what did we do? We put them in a bag and after the draft raid, some of us go up to Canada and we give these out you know, to the draft center up there to have people come back to the United States who thought they were leaving forever. Now they come back and they have an, a legitimate, you know, selective service card that says like they're 1F or whatever, 4F or whatever they wanted. But 4F means you you had a physical or, or mental impairment that uh, got you out of the draft. Right. So the thing is, is that, so how do I know this is true? A couple of years later, after prison, I mean a couple, so it's about five years later, I'm living in Oakland, California, doing this job for the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker group. And I get a knock on the door and it's the FBI. <laughs> what do they want me for? You know, I've been in prison by that time and, and, and I was on parole and I'd gotten married and stuff. And they were looking for a guy who they knew had our draft cards. So that plus a letter that's on my website, www.minnesota8.net, a letter from a fellow who said, you know, you destroyed my draft file and here I am, you know, retiring and I have like, you know, 17 grandchildren and all this stuff. And if it hadn't been for you guys, you know, we wouldn't have been here. So we know, we didn't know at the time how things are going to work out. The communication today is much more immediate, you know, instant messaging, even emails and stuff like that, or conversations on the net like we're having right now. Um, so... We, we came to realize that the government saw us in a certain light. So one of the part of our stories is why we were, we were broken up into three trials, which eventually works to my favor. If you know anything about the law, when you have three separate trials where everybody's doing the same thing, say like a bank heist or some type of scam, they try to consolidate to save money, but they ran three separate trials. And the reason they did that was that because of the Chicago eight which most of you probably know about, much more famous group that protested at the, at the Democratic Convention. They didn't want to have another sort of Minnesota 8 single trial. So we actually had three trials and Chuck was in a different one than I was in. And I had a different judge. But they all ended up at the same sentence, getting a five-year sentence, which at the time, you know, we didn't see any end. So one of the real, so you can tell by my, my constant chatter here, two things, that I taught college and that I'm also an extrovert. <laughs> so the fact is, when we were on trial, one of the things, you know, is I went and I made my, we, so we opened up our trial by saying we did it, and we want to tell you why. It's just like when we got arrested in, at, I was in this town called Little Falls, Minnesota. You can find it on the map. It's up in the northwestern part of Minnesota. And when the FBI came here, they came in, you know, imagine what it's like. You're sitting there, trying to break into these draft files and guys come in with guns drawn out and they point them at you. And, and I never know why I did what I'm going to tell you I did as I walked up and I said, yeah, you have nothing to fear from us. Like, yeah, right. And we have nothing to fear from you. And they handcuffed us and put us there and, and we eventually go on trial and, and get the sentence. But so one of the, so how this is, this is how things happen. If you just live life, as you know you have to, so that when you wake up in the morning, you can look yourself in the face and you can feel good, no matter what the rest of the world is saying, you know, you're a crummy person, you're a convict, you're a criminal, you did, you broke the law, all this other stuff, is the, is the fact that, you know, Daniel Ellsberg comes to our trial, and we're the last place that he is before he decides to have his own trial, and he released what's called the Pentagon Papers, which most of you are familiar with, and the Pentagon Papers showed this sort of pattern of deception by the government for people in America. Well, well, we would have never met him and he would have never met us. And he, he, was, he had just come from a, a meeting of, um, maybe Chuck would remember the group, the, a big peace movement group. And, and he had decided that, you know, he was trying to get the papers released so that he, he had been in Vietnam twice as an officer, but he didn't want to, you know, break the law. So when he did, do this finally and did go to trial, he faced like 105 <laughs> five years, but then they had a mistrial and they never tried him again. Okay, why didn't they trial, trial him again and why is what we did important and it's being replicated by many people with all the things that you folks are doing, how important it is. 
is that, you know, we found out that the Vietnam War really wasn't the big problem. The big problem still is nuclear war. They have nuclear stations all throughout, you know, like I said in the, in the jokes, that the, the state of North Dakota is the third most powerful nuclear nation in the world. They have more silos and nukes in the ground. And you say, oh, they dismantled them. Uh, I don't believe that. They got this stuff, just like, you know, Putin is sort of rattling his little thing, saying, you know, I, I want to invade this country. And if you, you come and stop me, I'm going to, you know, set off nuclear. The one smart thing that the president is doing is not starting a nuclear war because everybody gets affected by that. It doesn't, the, the fallout doesn't stay in one area. So when we went to trial, of course, you know, we had tremendous support from the anti-war community, a lot of peace activists and stuff. And I think that's important to talk about because people went out and, you know, did whatever. One of my very close friends, Karen Clark, became a state representative. She just retired. I mean, there's all types of things that come from the war. Go ahead, Arthur. I just wanted to back up just to make clear to people the big picture of what happened here. So here we have Daniel Ellsberg, who was looking for a way to legally release the Pentagon Papers. And if he could have gotten to testify at that trial, and he could have had to prove uh, what, that what you were doing was in fact hold, upholding the law and the government was violating the law, then he could have legally released those papers into the trial transcript, and it would have been a legal way to release it. As it happened, the judge did not allow Daniel Ellsberg's testimony, correct? That's right. And the re we were, what we found out later on was that, you know, the government was following Dan everywhere he went. So our, our, the judge in our trial, a guy named Philip Neville, who's now dead, during most of the trial, he's laid back and he's doing stuff. And when Ellsberg's there, he's like leaning forward. Almost every word Dan says, he says, objection. Sustained. <laughs> and they're not, they didn't need a, a, a lawyer to say objection. The, the judge is saying objection. Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that they had contacted, the government had contacted Neville and told him who Ellsberg was. So Dan was carrying, <laughs> carrying a briefcase where he had some of the Pentagon papers. He, he wanted to get them introduced as evidence. So he had set up a little dialogue with one of the lawyers. So I was attorney pro se. But the other, but the, we had some regular lawyers who knew the, the legal system and stuff. So Dan had it set up with one of the lawyers, Ken Tilson, who's now also dead, um, to get this little conversation going where he would say, get the uh, prosecutor to jump up and say, prove that. And Dan would then take the Pentagon Papers and say, here, I can prove it. But of course, that didn't happen. So it was after the trial. We, so we ended the trial not knowing what he was trying to do. I mean, Ellsberg, we, just, we didn't know what we, everybody knows about him now. And so a friend of mine, Brad Benneke, who's one of our group, and I were on a trip back east. We were staying at Dan's apartment in Massachusetts. Dan was living in California, as he does right now. And we would see it on the news, you know, about the, about the Pentagon Papers. Just like, wow, you know, if that had happened at our trial, we would have got, got 100 years. Okay, so the real story here is as much as people want to say, well, you did a great thing or whatever, we didn't really know what, how, you know, we acted out of desperation. It was like, you know, we, we talked, we preached, we did all types of stuff. I, we went to colleges, we did everything. And nothing, you know, wrote articles for the newspapers and stuff. And it was like, there was no impact. So the fact of the matter is raiding the draft board did get people's attention. So the feds were like, which is their job? You know, they came in and they basically arrested us. So just again, to show you how messy the whole thing is, we found out that the feds were at draft boards where nobody ever came that night, and they missed two of them. One, two of our group, one of them went in, in a town and actually destroyed the draft board. Another one went down to do their raid, and by this time, there was a sign-up that they had, uh, you know, a security system. So there's a lot of funny stories that happened, but it was a very human thing. And part of it is desperation, and part of it is you, you got to just sort of put your head down and do the work that we need to do. Like, you know, Joseph Ronka is doing here in his type of work, and, you know, all types of people doing good stuff. And it doesn't take, you know, I, I always try to tell people, I'll tell you my story, but don't think that you had have to do it. It's not just people who, like, you know, did Catholic radical draft board raids that are the people to talk about. There were literally thousands of people who were against the war and are still against the war, yet the war goes on. So I'm in a different phase of my life right now where basically I'm not as much trying to change the system as 
walking a different pathway, which I won't get into right now at the moment. But I mean, that's important is that I, I don't think that the warrior culture is going to like evaporate overnight. So, so let me go back to one thing. So at one point you mentioned during one of the raids, uh, the FBI apparently showed up with guns drawn and you said, oh, that's all right. You don't have to be afraid of us. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. You have nothing to fear from us. <laughs> so, so that was where you actually got arrested was in the midst of one of the raids. Yeah, it was in the midst of the of the of the Minnesota raid up within the town I was in, and the guy pointed a gun in my face. I, I trust me, I can still remember it. And I keep I always, you know, when you want to talk about something happening that's out of your control, I sort of sort of like an angel whispering in my ear, you know, tell them that they have nothing to fear. For <laughs> like, I don't think the FBI was afraid of us, but so, <laughs> so they handcuffed us and they're taking us down, driving from this town, Little Falls, down to St. Paul to put us in this in jail. And um, I realized halfway down there that there's a guy in the back seat taking notes of everything I'm saying. So I stopped talking. <laughs> I figured, well, we'll do that at this time. Okay, so the last little thing before you might want to ask some questions is that so we raided a draft board. Okay, that's a serious offense. We get charged with sabotage of the national defense. Ten-year sentence. Sabotage. We're saboteurs. I mean, I, I mean, you can count the parking tickets I had. I had never broken law. I'd never been in jail. And so we get to say we're saboteurs. So this is the deal. They indicted us as sabotage. And then when they, sorry, when they go to indict us, they change it to interference with the selective service system by force, violence, and otherwise. And I say otherwise. And they said, no, by violence. Otherwise meant it was a nonviolent protest. And since we destroyed paper that you know that which belonged to the government that made us the, the 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 people we are and so chuck and i still have the great honor of being felons you know there's nothing we can do about that that's part of what we carry with us so well i wonder if chuck could unmute himself since it's very special to have him here and he was he was the one you pushed through into the office first uh maybe chuck could unmute and describe that day a little bit to us and what was it like first of all were you as you gathered to do this, were, were you scared? Were you confident? What were your feelings? Uh, uh, Chuck, are you available to unmute and, uh, and join in this discussion? I really don't have anything to add. Um, I was in a different city, a different small town than Frank was. I was in Alexandria, Minnesota. And uh, the FBI entered. We didn't know, I didn't had no idea who they were. I, was asking, are these vigilantes or something, something strange like that? And I, I saw a gun pointed at me, and the words that I heard, although my co one of my co-defendants said that isn't exactly what he said, was "move and you're dead." My co-defendant, <laughs> my co-defendant, he says he he said, "Don't move or you're dead," which would be more more practical. They wouldn't tell you move and you're dead, something that they don't want you to do. But I was. I was part of the draft resistance movement in another aspect of it. I had already refused induction. Can so you, unlike, Chuck, unlike, you, can unlike you Frank. Camera a little bit so we can see your face, half your oh, face. I'm is sorry. Off. There, now we can see you. Perfect. Go ahead. Unlike, unlike Frank, I was probably headed for prison already. I was part of the movement that had said, uh, let's fill the jails with uh, middle class young men, and maybe that will put pressure on the government to end the war. Uh, it ended up about 3,250 people did end up going to prison for refusing induction, although many, many more resisted the draft in various ways by not registering, by not telling the Selective Service when they moved to a new address, by turning in their cards and just cutting all contact off with the Selective Service system. So Frank was far more courageous than I was because I was headed for prison already, but Frank had already completed two years of alternative service as a conscientious objector. And even though he had completed that, he decided he needed to do more to help on in this war. So my hat's off to Frank. I was headed for prison anyhow. And they ended up simply not prosecuting me for refusing induction because they had gotten me on the more serious charge. Can you take well, us that day for uh, when they when they pushed you through the, uh, uh, boosted you up and pushed you into the office? Tell us what it was like that day. Uh, uh, were you were you frightened? Were you feeling emboldened? What was what was it like <laughs> to be part of that? I don't remember what I was feeling. I, we had already participated in the Beaver Fifty Five raid, 
where we raided all of the draft boards in St. Paul, Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota, that's Ramsey County of Minnesota, Hennepin County of Minnesota, and the state selective service offices. And we had raided, destroyed all of the 1A files in all of those offices uh, in February of 1970. So I think we were pretty confident. We probably were pretty naive. Uh, we never expected to be caught. I don't, I didn't, I don't think my heart was beating any any stronger or anything. Uh, we expected to get away with it. Yeah, I'm short, as Frank said, noted. I'm five foot one now. I was five foot two at the time, and uh, I had trouble getting up to the roof, up to the window ledge to get up to the roof in our draft board. So one of my co-defendants, Bill Tilton, uh, pulled me up uh, to get up to the the roof of a garage that we ended up jumping up to the second floor to get into the uh, to a window to the women's bathroom in the building that we went into. <laughs> people should know that Chuck is a Phi Beta Kappa and one of the smartest people that I've ever met. Frank hasn't uh, met very many smart people, I, I can. Well, there's a, there's a, I think you're both amazing people. There's a movie called 1971 uh, about uh, uh, this kind of a, of, a, of a raid. This was the one on the FBI office that revealed that the FBI was grossly violating the civil liberties of everybody in the country, and that made huge headlines. Uh, but I want to go back a little bit to the momentous, momentousness of the action that Frank and Chuck and the others took, and that is that because of your raids, as I understand it, you virtually brought, you, you virtually saved almost all the young men in Minnesota from being drafted and sent to the war. Is that correct? Yeah, Arthur, that's true. But, you know, what you find out is that they weren't, you know, not like the men from Minnesota, so they went down to Iowa and Montana and got more bodies. It's it's like the system. It's a head, hide your headed monster. You can't stop it. Well, you so know, the system drafted people in other areas, but there in Minnesota, you have so many people. You mentioned the one story of the fellow who was grateful that he has he has children and grandchildren. Right. And wouldn't have had that if it weren't for you. So no, in no, the state I of Minnesota, that. there were there were there were there were you know millions of young men. Who, who have now gotten to carry on their life uh, thanks to the courage of the action that people like you and Chuck took and, and being willing uh, to go to prison to stand up for stopping the war machine. Yeah, but the, you know, the prison experience is like a whole other story. <laughs> well, tell I mean, us about end, that. No, it's a whole other conversation. I mean, it's just like, you know, living in prison is, it was, you know, someone like me had to sort of go there to understand it. And I've been involved in prison work and, and writing about it ever since. But that's, again, another story. Dur during the, the time, which a lot of these people have lived through, you know, there are a lot of people who wanted to live in a world without war. I mean, part of what, Arthur, you and Melanie are all about, being a world citizen. It was the first time that people started talking that way. Like, to be a good American, you had to be a good Earth person. You know, that was part of the deal. And this is something that's still for, up for discussion. And there's a lot of, when, you know, you talk to young people today, like my oldest son is, is a professor at the University of Hong Kong, the School of Law. He's, he's been living in China. He's probably gonna marry a Chinese woman. Um, you know, that just didn't, in our day, you know, that China was like really far away. Now it's, we have conversations over the internet and cell phones and all that stuff. So the fact is, is that it was a really very different time, but the disillusionment with the government, we're facing a lot of that right now. You know, I mean, things go on. This is why things go on with the regular government that, you know, before all the shenanigans that have been going on with, with um, Trump's people, there's, there's sort of enough issues still that we haven't faced. And that is we, we are, so I just want everybody to realize that we still are in the first phase of nuclear war. It's been declared. We, as a country, started it by dropping the first atom bomb. Questionable whether we should have dropped the second, but that's a whole other story, and the discussion is always behind all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, a lot of people, like on this call, Alice Holstein was in the military, and there are a lot of good people who basically risked their lives. There are a lot of good people who died, you know, trying to defend an America that they thought existed. But part of, like, what happened when you know in Daniel Ellsberg who was uh, the highest ranking civilian in the government at the time that he started doing the, the type of work he did, is, is that 
you know, the government was lying. And this was from our generation. It's, it's sort of the worst heritage, but nevertheless, the heritage we give to young people today. Can you trust the government? People go, well, I'm not sure about that, you know? And so a lot, of, so my, my two sons have found a way of avoiding the draft without, without doing what their old man, who they think is half crazy for all that he did, you know, they were in academia and stuff like that, and they evaded, you know, having to do service. So I just want to also make clear that I don't, I think that it's important that we do national service for our country. And that, that and I, this is one of the things I feel badly about, is that this issue sort of glosses over a lot of other issues that are important to, to look at. And one of the things is we have to build a strong society, you know. I mean, I was raised a Roman Catholic and, you know, we were always, this is not a Catholic country. We were sort of other people. And it wasn't until J.F. Kennedy was made president that Catholics sort of became acceptable people. So the thing is, is that it's the story that I try to tell people is that the one thing I want people to take away from all this is that when you go somebody think something is risky, go do it. Mm. I mean, you wow. know, my biggest fear was what was going to happen in the future. My story is fine. I, I got. I've had a rough decade or, or so after prison, but you know, I went in into the corporate world. I've been president of a company. I've done a bunch of different things, new technologies, you know, stuff like that. But the fact of the matter is, what I feel good about is that, you know, I, I when I had a chance to act, I did. And I mean, Chuck, Chuck is is a great example of a not a person who's still throughout his whole life has carried the message of peace and, and good thinking. You know, he's one of the smartest guys you'll ever meet. I just, just trust Terrific. Well, I'm very met a pleased, lot of smart people. Very pleased that he's uh, part of this with us and got to share a little bit about the, uh, about the event. And by the way, if other people have questions or comments, uh, put them in the chat and we'll turn it over to Melanie soon to uh, have people jump in. But I think it's so crucial, uh, you, know, you mentioned uh, Kennedy and whether the government lies. Uh, you know, this is the most crucial issue. As President Kennedy put it, every man, woman, and child lives under a nuclear sword of Damocles, hanging by the slenderest of threads, capable of being cut at any moment by accident, by miscalculation or madness. The weapons of war must be abolished before they abolish us. And that's so absolutely true. And not just nuclear war, it's really the whole war system. You know, nuclear weapons are a key part of that. But the whole war system is totally insane. I mean, in no country in the world is killing allowed. And yet outside countries would have to kill people. You could, you know, inside countries, that's what the world is my country is all about. In, in our, in our people-powered planet, you know, of course it's illegal to kill people. You can't, all the thing, all war is, is legalized criminality that somehow outside of countries we're allowed to do because there's no law. So it's crucial uh, that we, we the people, find a way to free ourselves from this, or we're toast. That's the end, that's the end of the world through ecocide or nuclear war. So what you're doing is crucial work. And so you're right. Yes, it's risky to go to prison, but how much riskier is it to lose everything, the whole, whole existence uh, of, of, of life on Earth, including not just the human species, but others. I see Chuck wants to jump in. Let's go I, ahead, Chuck. I just wanted to make one other comment. What we did and what all the draft board raisers, the draft resistors, the tax resistors, of that era did was much in the spirit of what Gary Davis did. It was taking direct action. It was moving from petitioning some other entity, whether it be a government, to taking an action that will uh, put into place what you what you want to what your vision is for the future yourself. Uh, so it was very much in the spirit of what Gary Davis did. Gary Davis did as a direct action or a part of the history of direct action movements in the United States. Beautiful, thank you for sharing that. Yes, you're right. Uh, it's one thing to write letters and beg and plead government leaders to change things. But as, as Bucky Fuller said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. You've got to create a new model and you've got to go out and do it yourselves. And what, uh, what, uh, what Frank did was actually to free the, the young men of Minnesota from getting drafted to have to go kill people in this awful war. And the fact that you sent these uh, uh, blank cards to Canada and gave them ways to issue, <laughs> to get people back with, uh, with official 4F statuses, that is brilliant. And uh, so I think it's really uh, uh, pretty impressive, uh, uh, the work you've pulled off. And there are so many unsung heroes. Now, of course, 
Daniel Ellsberg is much better known, but I highly recommend a movie by our friend Judith Ehrlich called The Most Dangerous Man in America. Now, why is Dan Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America? I think that's what Kissinger called him uh, because he was revealing the truth. And revealing the truth is dangerous. Oh, my God. If you're trying to keep, keep the empire in, in, in uh, running, you, you don't want people going around revealing the truth. So uh, Daniel Ellsberg, of course, has been a, a big hero to many uh, because he did have the willingness to, uh, to put his, his, his life on the line and to reveal the truth of these papers. And then look at all the newspapers. It's very, you've seen the, 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 the movies about uh, uh, Watergate and so on, but the fact that, um, that it, was, it, was a, it was a very daring thing, the Washington Post and these other papers, they were th being threatened by the government, you know, we'll shut you down, we'll, bring, we'll, we'll charge you with espionage. But they decided that the press together uh, they, they sort of, you know, the Washington Post released the section and then the, the Philadelphia Inquirer and then, and then the Denver whatever and different newspapers all over released parts of these Pentagon papers. And these journalists had courage in those days to stand out and to release these things. And it became so big that the government couldn't possibly prosecute all the newspapers in the country for revealing these Pentagon papers, which, you know, what national secret was it? The secret was that we're, the government's lying to you folks and they're and they're lying to you about the most crucial thing, which is uh, the very survival of life on Earth. Uh, well, let's see who else has a comment or questions. Uh, can I throw, throw it over to you, Melanie, to take over? All right, Melanie's gonna go ahead and uh, she's watching the uh, chat and she's watching your questions. She's gonna take over at this point, our amazing producer, Melanie Bennett. Thank you, Arthur. Wow, very nice intro. Um, goodness. Frank, I just want to say to you really quick, um, I, I, what you are is, are an inspiration. You are an inspiration to people who maybe are afraid to take action, not sure. Um, you know, you but you come like you said, you come into a desperation mode where you have to do something. And I hope there are times when people will just be brave. Um, there are things that need to be done to make, to move the needle, to stop war, stop the nuclear uh, disaster that uh, we're looking at. And we need to step up. I mean, it's, it's, it's just something you have to do sometimes. You have to blow the whistle. You have to say, these are lies. You just have to step up. So I just wanna say thank you for your inspiration to all of us to be the better person and to be able to look at ourselves in, in the mirror. That's, that was a key statement. It's not what other people think of you. It's how you view yourself and do you feel good about yourself? And Absolutely. yeah, and you, and you want, we want this world to continue. We want, we want things to, it's such a beautiful place. Why do we have to destroy it? It doesn't make sense. And there are only a few people wanting to do that. And the majority of the people don't want that to happen. So there's no reason why we can't stop that minority from destroying the planet. So thank you, thank you, Frank. Um, I'm wondering, I didn't get an okay, but I wondered if, uh, Alice, did you wanna jump in and just give a little bit of your um, take on all this? What I'm interested in, in other words, uh, Frank, I'm asking you to be uh, revealing is how did you call upon whatever you called upon to survive prison? <laughs> well, when I went to prison, I had lost both my country in the sense I was considered the worst of the worst. And like I told you recently, 10 days after my sentence, the archbishop came out and for all practical purposes, kicked me out of the Catholic Church. So I was lost. You know, I mean, I'll be very honest. I mean, I'm a big guy. And, you know, people say, you're pulling hard time. And it was true. It, so when we got out of prison, it was just as much a surprise as what had happened back then between in 1971 and 72 and 73, you know, things, things happened outside that, you know, again, changed the scenario. Instead of spending five years, I spent 14 months, terrible months. Chuck was in there longer. They went in like six months earlier. It's all, the story's real much more complicated, very human. Um, what brought me back is this vision of what I call the earth folk. And I have the website, www.earthfolk.net, which talks about the earth folk, not earth people, earthfolk.net. And um, was sort of the realization that one of the things that, that the Vietnam War 
brought to me, and you know that world a lot better than I do, Alice, um, was the fact is that the world is one. You know, part of the deal is, is that if you took off from, you know, where I live right now, well, I'm visiting my sister in Atlanta, but living in San Diego, and, I, and we flew around the world, we'd come back to San Diego. I mean, it's round. And, and all the people on it are, are, are our brothers and sisters. And we, so this was a period of time when the last thing to do was to look at, and so, okay, so I'm in prison with people who I have no romantic ideas about. I mean, there are guys there who would kill me for, you know, a hot sandwich, you know I mean? And I worked a lot with, ex, with convicts going up, non-political people going up in front of the draft board and help them understand how they should talk to the draft board, help them write a statement type of stuff. But nevertheless, it was it was a, a terrible thing. I mean, and we need to help people get better. So it's not like you're going to do away with prisons or you're going to do away with the military. You know this about the military. A lot of good people there who want to do good and want to create the world and, uh, and are leading thinkers for us about how, what we should do. And But at the same time, we don't have any romantic ideas that people are going to like flip overnight. I feel that we have to go forward ourselves in the world that we're in and, and create a new world. It's what I call the world of the earth folk, you know, where people really value being part of the earth and 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 living a good life. I could go on, as you can tell. Oh, well, just, now, Frank, Frank, that actually we have Sharon was kind of wanted wants you to elaborate. Sharon wants you to elaborate on just what you said going forward. Um, what is what is it the the change that we people need to make? I think I think you know I was on another call with the whole group of different men yesterday. And people are really like depressed with what's going on over in, in the Ukraine, of course, which I think we all are. But the, the, we're depressed for different reasons. Part of it is is the sort of failure again. I mean, Putin's obviously a guy who thinks that the world is, you know, divided up into Russia, like Russia exists independent of Uruguay or any other country. I mean, you know, what we've learned in in since the 60s basically is that we are the world. What's that song? We are the world. You know, I mean, it's true. We're, we are one. God damn it. You know, why don't people get their heads, why don't our leaders get their heads together and understand that they should get together and, and start acting that way and do things. It's like, so the one thing that makes us realize all of this are these stupid pandemics. I mean, I don't know about you folks, but I, like I said, I'm 77 years old. I had four shots. I have no idea whether they're even telling us the truth about this. But nevertheless, the fact is, is that, you know, people are dying and things are happening and it's a world issue. You can't just say, well, we're going to take care of America and make ourselves medically safe. It's not going to work that way. The, the virus goes around the world. Well, so many other issues, we have to look at them that way. You know, I, I, you know, my, my friend Alice here, she writes about mental illness and the stigma and what needs to be done for understanding people about the illness as a, what she calls a spiritual pathway. Very unique material. You should all write down her name and look up her website. I mean, it's really life-changing because it goes the same way you know in the vietnam war we called people gooks other human beings we call them gooks well you know i mean i'm i've been on the other side of that i'm a number eight eight six seven one four seven so you know i mean I'm, i was treated mm. like i was a gook yeah that's and, the thing that's the the whole part of the recipe to make people kill each other is to right. degrade them they're not human they're different the, you know, and that, that allows we, we, we even make a big thing about people being French. Or my first brother-in-law was Italian. I grew up in a town in Bayonne, New Jersey, which is in northern New Jersey, where we had an Irish Catholic church, an Italian church, and a Polish church. So Frank Sophia, when he was dating my older sister, Martha, they've been married now 50-some-odd years, in order to break through that, he would go to Mass where my father went to Mass. So my father would see him. But, you know, the idea of marrying a Sophia was like, it's, it's yeah. kind, of, kind of silly today, right? Yeah, there's, there's, we need, yeah, we need, definitely, we need to, uh, like you said, remember, we're one, we're one humanity, that's why it's so important, everybody uh, reach in their mind to really assimilate the idea, I'm a world citizen, I'm part of this whole group, this group of humanity. Now, before we go, we have a couple more questions. I wanted to go to Andrew. Andrew, go right ahead with your question or comment. Hello, Frank. Um, you sort of touched on this, possibly. Um, the attitude of other prisoners to conscientious objectors and whether you think that was different in those days to what it would be now? Um, 
the the very first guys who went in, into prison for the war were like you know just a couple guys who were in a prison that was it when by the time i got there being a co which nobody knew what that meant anymore conscience objective they just called the co's was accepted so if you weren't part of a group you opened yourself up to like being attacked physically or sexually so when I, when I got there, again, I wouldn't explain everything. They put me in solitary confinement. But when they let me out, one of my guys came, Brad Benneke, to pick me up. And, and part of the deal is he said, you know, he's one of us. And you needed that type of identity, you know, in order not to be beat up or molested or whatever type of stuff. So that, that's part of what, you know, goes on in prison. But at night, when the lights went out, you would hear people having sex. So you'd ask a guy, you know, are you gay? He would say, no. Well, why are you having sex for? Well, I'm doing five years and, you know, mm. what else am I going to do? That people have no alternatives. The world they're going to go out and for some of them is worse than the world inside. At least inside, they sort of know what's going to happen during the day and they get yeah. three square meals and stuff like that. We're going to go to Joseph. Joseph, go right ahead. Well, you've mentioned Catholicism a lot. And, um, well, I was raised Catholic and I used to hang out at the Catholic worker at their Friday night meetings and it had a tremendous influence on me. And um, my question was, um, what did the archbishop say? Uh, why did he uh, excommunicate you? And um, what was his reasoning? Because if you do Catholicism right, it's kind of radical socialism. And it calls well, citizen. No, it, if you do it right, and it calls it right, well, citizenship. Yeah. I peruse libraries occasionally on world citizenship, and apart from Gary's works, um, there are a lot of popes that constantly spoke about the need for world citizenship and world government. So, what is what did the bishop? What was his reasoning? I don't I don't quite get it. No, he didn't, he never called me in to sort of explain that to me. It was sort of a letter that was a mandate, sort of like, you know, you've been judged by the civil authorities, you know, to be a convict. And so that so he was saying to all his pastors that he was shocked that they allowed me to preach. So that was about it, even though I had a master's degree in theology at the time. Uh -huh. So yeah. I never he didn't say come and talk to me or you know come visit or whatever. It was like, you know, from a distance. So, so you know, I had just stood up in court and been told that you're the worst of the worst of human beings and you're gonna do five years in prison. And my mother is in, you know, hearing has said, well, one of her children, you know, I mean, my son's going to prison for five years. And so the paper, some articles in the paper talked about us in a positive way. Some of them talked about us in a negative way. And his was just sort of a negative, like, you know, you messed up kid, you're out. Wow. Oh my and God. So I was just, I was too depressed by the whole thing. It's oh. like nothing I was doing was having any effect. I mean, we're 50 years plus, you know, away from that time, and I can see some positive in, impact. But the fact of the matter is, you know, you people are all struggling with, today with still trying to create the, the world. Or again, like with Arthur and Melanie keep saying, the, the world is one place. It's like, how stupid can you be? You get in an airplane and you fly around, you end up back where you, where you started from. You know, we all people yeah. should, you know, they should get it. Yes, yes, we want people to get it. And that's why we want to get this film out. But my goodness, Frank, no, you made a huge difference. And you're making a huge difference right now by inspiring us. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, one, uh, we only have a few minutes. So I'm going to go back to Arthur. Arthur, take it away. Well, before I do, I think we can run a little over. I see there's a very interesting question or comment by Marie. Is that okay, Frank? I don't mind going over if you're okay with it, Frank. Frank said he's okay. All right. So then, um, so Maureen, she's never heard of Gary Davis or the World Citizen Movement until a couple of weeks ago. However, since junior high, if not sooner, I've never felt or been patriotic to any country. I would tell people I'm a patriot of the whole world and that every person everywhere is my brother or sister. That's how I still think and feel. I'm 66 now. My adult son is a physicist and an atheist. When applying for jobs, he invariably told the interviews that he would not, could not work on any weapon. My icon for my picture is a drawing from my, my then almost seven-year-old granddaughter. That is the world I want for her. I will save more for another time. Love you all. Thanks. Thank you to all of you. So there you are. Thank you, Marie. It was so great to have you here. And, uh, 
Yes, so back to you, Arthur, now. Back to you, Okay, Arthur. sure, and what a beautiful comment to close on. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Um, we do want to suggest uh, several resources to have you continue. One is, to, of course, to go, uh, if you, I'm sure all of you have seen the movie, but if you haven't, go to theworldismycountry.com and just click on the, how to watch the movie. And then also, if you go to uh, theworldismycountry.com, uh, you'll see a little talk I gave where I described how we can actually create a people-powered planet, how, how we can uh, not wait, sit around waiting for government leaders to solve the problem, but where we can directly go into helping to enforce, uh, uh, for instance, the nuclear treaty, which is it, it has had enough ratifications that it is now officially international law. Go to theworldismycountry.com and click on the People Powered Planet podcast and sign up for our club. If you can, be a member. By by, uh, You get the first two months free, and then you can give us a little monthly support each month to keep going if you'd like. Uh, if not, you can sign up just free there, just as uh, uh, just to join us for for the fun and, and good feeling of it. But we'd love to have you uh, be one of our members. So Joe is saying something there. Let Joe. Yeah, I, I would just uh, love to uh, again thank um, you, um, Arthur and Melanie, uh, for bringing Frank to my attention. Wow, I knew nothing about your story. That's incredible. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That is just amazing and 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 um and again always always to melanie and arthur for bringing gary davis to so many people's attention that i'm sure many people who've been in the peace movement forever like i have you know did not know about gary davis until you all did what you did so you know i just you know, I just feel grateful for you all every day. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We love you, and we love all I'd of like you. I'd like to make one final comment. We are not alone. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you go home after a protest or whatever, and you just think, I, I'm going to die someday. I'm going to go look at this white hair. <laughs> We're not alone, and there are young people stepping up. You know, you meet them every place all types of different organizations and it's because there's no central office of like resistance to whatever i mean except you get groups like you know the world is my country and stuff like that um people powered planet um you know you're all doing it so the thing that i find out you know trust me seeing all of you here you know just means so much to me because you know there was so many times that i was just like alone and i had to go look at chuck turchick to sort of feel that there was somebody you know, besides me in the world who is this crazy. But you're all wonderful, crazy people. You believe in peace. I think that's wonderful. Wonderful, crazy people. And that's what, you know, Gary, Gary Davis, he had the nerve to be crazy. And ain't it great to be willing to step out of the norm and, and be crazy enough to say, hey, humanity should live and we should survive on this planet. And so let's do it, folks. Let's do it and let's keep having fun doing it. Okay. Uh, is Charlotte trying to jump in with a comment? Yeah, Frank, I just want to commend you because essentially what you did was you save thousands of people to not have to go and kill thousands of people yes. in Vietnam. So I, th I think that's wonderful. Yes. And you said something about building um, for our nation. And what always upset me when I started working at CDI with Arthur, Center for Defense Information, is that there were always the big commercials to join the Army, the Navy, what have you, but very little about joining the Peace Corps. Good to rejoin you, Arthur. Thank you so much, Charlotte, for joining us. Charlotte was a part of, we were working uh, at, at the Center for Defense Information in Washington, where uh, we made the film War Without Winners with Paul Newman. Yeah. Uh, but we were working with admirals and generals who were speaking out for peace, people who were right in the, had been in the heart of the military. Uh, uh, you know, Admiral Iraq had been a key player in Pearl Harbor and so on. And, and 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 uh, and yet, these people. He said, "There is no, there's, you, there's no way I can be do, true to my oath to protect and defend the country uh, by nuclear war because there's no country. I've destroyed the country if I do that. The only way to do it, he said, is to avert a nuclear war. So yes, do also go to uh, warwithoutwinners.com and you can see a movie that we made there that Charlotte was part of doing and that is very relevant to the world today as uh, as we're still inching toward." Uh, perilously close to nuclear war 
And we, the people, are the power force that's going to help us step back and save this world. Thank you for joining us in another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. Thank you for watching. Please subscribe to our channel and like this video.